Hey friends, welcome to Calling Water. My name is Linda, and for those of you who are listening for the first time, what we do on this podcast is we look at a passage of scripture and try to learn what it means and what it might call us to do. In today's episode, Such a Time as This, we're looking at Esther chapters 1 through 4 and seeing how God was at work behind the scenes in Esther's story and preparing her to rescue an entire people. Let's get started. I'm not going to lie, as much as I love this book, it also enrages me. On the surface, it looks like a simple story of a young girl who came from nothing, became a queen, and then saved her people, right? And that's the redacted Disney princess version for sure. But if you examine the book of Esther verse by verse, you'll see that the political and societal climate during this time was so complex and so oppressive that it makes the story of Esther actually even more incredible. So what we're going to do is divide our study of the book of Esther into two parts. In this episode, we'll cover the first four chapters of the book, and in the following episode, I will have a guest join me to discuss the remaining six chapters. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Esther, I suggest you press pause if you can and just read chapters one through four before you continue. In fact, even if you're intimately familiar with the story, it's always worth another read because there's just so much there. But here's the condensed version of what happens in the first half of the book. The story takes place in the time period that comes generations after the first exiles from Israel, long after Daniel and his friends were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, who were then later replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And I only mention this to show that these were generally destitute times for God's people who were the Jewish diaspora that were scattered across the lands. And that is the story of Esther and her cousin Mordecai. And we probably would have never even heard of them if it weren't for this little development in chapter one. At the top of the text, King Xerxes of Persia is throwing a party for one purpose, to display his splendor. And during this week-long banquet where he's showing off all his finery, not to mention all the partygoers were instructed to drink to excess, he decides to show off yet another beauty in his possession, the queen. So he summons Queen Vashti, and to his great shock and fury, she refuses to come. So the king turns to his nobles and asks what he should do about it, because clearly this cannot stand. And you know, the nobles are really invested in making an example of Vashti, because as it just so happened, the queen had been holding a banquet at the same time for all the women, presumably the wives of these noblemen. And when the queen refused her summons, she was setting a dangerous precedent for all the women in all of Persia, or that's what they said anyway. So they advised the king to write a decree deposing Vashti of her queenly title to serve as a warning for any woman who dares defy a man. I'm not kidding. This is what's in the text. So now when we cross over into chapter two of Esther and the hunt for a new queen begins, this is a prerequisite, a woman who is as remarkably beautiful as she is totally submissive. Now, I know that some of you men listening might be going, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds like wifey goals, actually. 
And, you know, I've heard preachers say that there is no record of Esther objecting to be taken away. So it must mean that she was on board with all of this. I mean, what little girl doesn't want to be queen? And, you know, people said this of the story of David and Bathsheba, too. But this is what happens when we view historical text and apply 21st century standards to them. Now, this was a time when women were not afforded very many rights, if any. So Esther's story is less of a beauty pageant and more like sex trafficking, honestly. The absence of protest by these women is not consent. It's a sign of powerlessness. All the girls who were gathered to appear before Xerxes had no say in the matter. They went through a year's worth of beautification rituals before they were brought out before the king. And after their audience with the king, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, they were sent to a place where the concubines were kept because they were now damaged goods. Now, regardless of these reprehensible conditions, the young girl known as Hadassah or Esther strikes the king's fancy the most and she becomes the new queen. And then we don't really hear much from her because we find out it's pretty much her cousin Mordecai who drives most of the plot in this book. He warns Esther for whatever reason not to reveal her Jewish identity to the people in the palace, and he doesn't fully explain why, but the reader is supposed to draw the obvious conclusions because who were the original audience of this book? The Jewish people. They understood by the time these words were passed on to them that their predecessors had seen some stuff. And in this story, their plight is set in motion by this one encounter. Mordecai refuses to bow to a man called Haman, who was the king's right-hand man. Now, because of this, Haman begins to not only try to bring down Mordecai, but the entire Jewish population in Persia. But to be clear, Haman didn't hate the Jews as a result of Mordecai's actions. There was already underlying bigotry there. But Mordecai's refusal to bow became the perfect cover to take his xenophobia to a whole new level, genocide. Now listen to the words he used to cajole Xerxes in Esther chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. The king's best interest, he says. Like the nobles in chapter 1, Haman is appealing to the king's ego to push through his own agenda. We saw this happen a lot in the book of Daniel, too. But Xerxes is the textbook definition of a mere figurehead, and he allows these irreversible decrees to be turned into law. Now, upon hearing this, Mordecai mourns along with the rest of the Jews in every province of Persia. The Mordecai, who once told Esther to hide her identity, tells her she needs to now go to the king and ask that he revoke this heinous new law. Esther explains to him that no one is allowed to go to the king unless they're summoned, otherwise they could be sentenced to death. Then Mordecai says this to Esther in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. 
Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai had been tasked with keeping Esther safe her whole life. Her keeping her identity hidden was for her protection as well. As Esther revealed to Mordecai, even the queen had very few liberties, so she was in danger every day. But now Mordecai realizes that God had perhaps placed Esther in this position so that she would now in turn protect everyone from the inside. Esther is at last persuaded. She says in verse 16, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and pray for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. For those of you who are listening during the week of Thanksgiving, you might be thinking, this is such a heavy story for this season. Just tell us to thank God for all our blessings and be done with it, right? But sometimes, if we're being truly honest, there are times when it's difficult to evoke a heart of thankfulness. And maybe for some of you, this is such a time. What do I have to be thankful for, you might be asking. In Sunday school, we were told, and we still tell the kids in Sunday school now, be thankful. You have a home. You have a family. You have health. You have food. But as we grow older, we realize that, yes, we have these things, and yes, we are thankful for them, but often our worries and anxieties about these things are far greater than our gratitude. I mean, if we could speak to Mordecai and Esther, would we tell them to be thankful? Would we say, hey, it sucks that there is this despicable human being who wants to destroy you and your people, but... Be thankful you have a place to live. Hey, Esther, sorry you're in this difficult situation where you just might die in order to save your people, but hey, be thankful you're the queen. Yeah, that sounds ridiculous, right? But isn't this how we talk to each other sometimes? Anytime people come to us with their woes, we say, hey, at least you have X, Y, and Z to be thankful for. And then we proceed to trivialize their problems and try to cure them with happy thoughts and platitudes, like joy from inside out. Hey, buddy, turn that frown upside down. Because let's face it, Esther and Mordecai in this season of their lives had so little to be thankful for. And they might have felt even abandoned by God. And there's no mention of God in this book, but it's this absence that makes God all the more conspicuous. because. It's not a coincidence that Esther became the queen. In fact, it's not even a coincidence that Mordecai enraged Haman to such a severe degree. And even though their salvation would be imminent, God allows them to mourn. When Esther accepts her fate as the liaison to the king, she asks everyone to pray and fast with her. She essentially asks everyone to mourn with her because she could very well die. 
So this Thanksgiving, in light of these readings from the book of Esther, I feel called to thankfulness in a new way. Instead of being thankful for the things God has given us despite our circumstances, what if we were thankful that we have a God who understands our hurts, our suffering, our imperfections, and our ingratitude even? What if we thank God for hearing us even though nothing is essentially better because sometimes it's more helpful to have someone sit beside you in your pain than to try to fix your problems? What if we express our gratitude for a savior who knows he set an impossible standard for us when he walked this earth, but he doesn't expect perfection from us, just relationship? And instead of seeing thankfulness as a state of being, what if it were a state of doing? So through that lens, I invite you Instead of going around the Thanksgiving dinner table saying something you're grateful for this year, what if we commit to doing something as a result of our thankfulness? If you're thankful for your family, what can you do to love them more? If you're thankful for your career, what can you do to help others with your success? And if you can't think of anything to be thankful for at all, What can you do to bring yourself closer to God and vent those feelings? Mordecai had mused out loud that Esther might have become queen for such a time as this, meaning a time of turbulence for their people. And yes, Esther may have been prepped for a specific time and purpose in the grand scheme of things, but for God, every time, every life season, every granular moment, that's God's such a time as this. That's why, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we can be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Because circumstances are ever-changing. At the beginning of the book with Queen Vashti, a woman's defiance was thought to be the downfall of a nation, but now it'll only be a woman's defiance on which hinges the survival of an entire nation. But the one constant was God, and no matter how it appears on the surface, God had been there all along. Let's pray. God, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for all that is good in our lives. Thank you for being with us and helping us through all that is less than good. Thank you that even as injustice, hate, anger, and division persist in this world, your love is stronger and more pervasive. Thank you that you sit with us in our sadness and feelings of defeat. Thank you that you celebrate with us in our victories. Thank you for your presence in all the moments in between when you are at work behind the scenes and equipping us to do the same. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.